0: Hi, and welcome to Gonzarilla. This is a podcast about music, movies, comedy, and all forms of excessive consumption. I'm Brian Bentley. It's great to be here today talking about one of my favorite subjects, rock and roll journalism. Right now, news information is literally at your fingertips. But in the 1970s, when rock and roll reached its highest peaks, there was no internet. The only way you could find out about music was either the radio, live music on TV shows, or through music newspapers and magazines. But there was one dedicated place where you could discover new bands and be exposed to funny, satirical, intelligent writing that made the reader feel included. And it was almost like friends that you could trust that were talking to you. And that invaluable source for me and a lot of people was a magazine called Cream. Cream was a group of highly skilled, I'll call them outlaw writers, who had congregated in 1969 in a rundown Detroit neighborhood to start a unique and revolutionary publication, really. And the story of that journey is the subject of a new documentary called Cream, America's Only Rock and Roll Magazine. Uh, The rock doc will be coming out this month in a variety of formats. And in our last episode, you guys heard Scott Crawford, the director of the documentary, and it was a great chat where Scott talked about how the clips were assembled for the movie, how the interviews came together, and we ran through everything sort of archival from a film and production angle. This week, you can consider this as Cream Part 2 of 2 because we're gonna focus more on the magazine's editorial history, maybe share some stories with all you writers out there who could only imagine what it would've been like to be in the bullpen at Cream, and that priceless chance to work alongside writers and editors like Dave Marsh, Lester Bangs, and get that rarest of opportunities, which is the freedom to tell the truth about rock and roll. My guest today was one of the first women in rock journalism. She was a co-founder at Cream and a senior editor at the magazine from 1971 to 76. And hopefully we can get some firsthand experience stories of what it was like to be part of the Cream family. Her writing has appeared in Uncut, Mojo, Rolling Stone, The Village Voice, New Musical Express, and Spin, to name just a few. I'm really happy to have Jan Helski here with us today.
1: Hi, it's nice to be here, and it's nice that you pronounced my name right. That usually doesn't happen.
0: <laughs> I got a little nervous. I listened to <laughs> quite a few interviews first. I, yeah. I wanted to talk about, you know, the best way to do these is just to sort of start at the beginning of how this project came together? Because Scott was talking about J.J. Kramer had the idea for a while, but he was looking for the right creative team to sort of do this. Can you, can you describe how it all sort of initiated?
1: Yeah, I think it's one of those things that it's like close encounters of the third kind. There's a, there's a lot of people hearing like the same thing, seeing the same thing. They're all like making these mountains out of their mashed potatoes in different areas. And I think what happened is they all got connected one summer when I'd gone back to Detroit to see my parents and I had uh, breakfast with Connie Kramer, JJ Kramer's mother. And she told me that JJ, who is a legal counsel at at, uh, Abercrombie and Fitch, the clothing company in Ohio, was thinking about abandoning his law career and coming back to Detroit and following his father's footsteps and and creating a magazine. And I said, Oh, no, that's a terrible idea. This is about four years ago. Uh, I said, I had this kind of crazy idea. I used to work with this guy named Scott Crawford. He owned um, and published a magazine called Heart Magazine, and has since gone on to make documentaries. And he's always bugging me about making a cream documentary. And I don't know, I just, uh, you know, I never took it any further. So I said, here's a win-win. JJ could meet with Scott. He could become an executive producer and Scott could make the movie and JJ could stay in his law practice. And she said, that was a great idea. So the two of them met, they got on like a house on fire and they started working together. Um, I was really thought of myself as nothing more than a conduit. I knew both of them. I'd known JJ since he was a kid. So um, I just took a step back and then they kept calling me and asking me questions, or wanting to know how to get a hold of like members of Kiss or Kirk Hammett, or what was it like? How did this work? And I, I thought, oh man, okay. So then I worked as a consultant, kind of unofficial consultant. And then I realized the more they called, then they started asking, well, do you want to do you want to help write the, write it? And I thought, writers write, why not? So it just developed. It was just a really organic flow that I started working with him full-time so for the next three years the three of us worked full-time JJ was not an executive producer I mean he he went far and above of being any kind of producer he's like one of our brain trusts and legal counsel and a spotter when things are inaccurate like he's really um he really has taken over his father's role as a visionary and Scott Scott's fearless I mean he He envisioned this for a long time. I I know when he uh, published Harp Magazine, he used to make it a point to hire cream writers um, to contribute to the magazine. I actually got there because Dave Marsh had been there first, and he said, why don't you go write for Harp? So he assembled people like John Morthlin and Robot Hull, and so many of the old staff at Ward got jobs with Harp. So he really was edging towards this project. It felt very meant to be because he was a magazine publisher doing his second documentary on a rock magazine. So it really all fit. We all had really important roles and they were all different. And I think when you choose partners, what you're supposed to choose, if you are if you feel like you're actually have any, any play in that because actually it's a much more intuitive organic process is that we all do different things. So we covered a lot of bases together.
0: You know, I—it's amazing the way you're describing it. It sounds to me like it was the perfect team, really. I mean, because you're—you were sort of like the the wrangler, like putting all this together and 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 connecting all the dots, and and you know, saying here are these writers and doing all this stuff. And I was just kind of curious because a lot of people don't understand. How a documentary is really written and put together. The credits for this say uh, it's like a co-writing effort between you and Scott. Was there a definitive sort of breakdown? Like, did you do the history of Cream and he worked more on structuring? I, you know, I know you did the Dave Marsh interview. He told me about that. Did you break it down in any specific way?
1: No, I did most of the interviews and did most of the um, writing of the questions. And and before I came on board. Scott did the first rush of interviews like Thurston Moore and Lenny Kaye and, and um, Bob Gruen and um, oh my god the guy who, who owns the clothing company who does Chrysler Commercial design spacing on his name. Um, and he, he did those rounds, and he did Michael Stipe, one of the best interviews in the whole yeah. movie. And I tended to do all the rest of them because what I did is I called in a lot of the favors of people I'd done stories on uh, or and I still I still work as a rock journalist, so people ongoing people like I work a lot with the Black Keys, so Patrick Carney did it, and I I, I lived in the Bay Area for a long time, so Kirk Hammett and I were friendly, so he said yes. So a lot of these people kiss because just kiss. I mean, we we started our careers together, you know. That was kind of a mutuality between Cream and Kiss, so I couldn't imagine how they wouldn't say yes, and of course they did. So it was really. It wasn't that we storyboarded, we just thought a lot about in terms of who we wanted, what story they had to tell, and where those arcs were. And actually it really came together when I interviewed Cameron Crowe and he made this comment about it was really when there was Barry Kramer and there was Dave Marsh and there was Lester Bangs, it was like the band was together. And that became the theme that actually Cream was like a band we were like the people we covered and those were like the three lead singers, not three dog nights, talking <laughs> hokey like that, but that's how it was. So that's really where the light bulb went off. It's not like we had a whiteboard and we were moving pieces around and, and, you know, changing things up or, you know, doing dailies every day. It really was, it was all dependent on the people we talked to and what information they could fill. So it was kind of like, and that sounds crazy, but it's kind of like, uh, like the Pasadena, Rose Parade. It's like you had chicken wire. You kept put putting paper roses in the little chicken wire holes. And then you saw, oh my God, it's a mosaic. This is the story. And that's more how it came to be than anything more formal.
0: Right. I mean, in other words, like somebody gives says an interview, somebody, you said a light bulb goes off and you say, oh, why don't we go there? You have your, your idea and your thing, but then it changes and morphs pretty much based on process and what happens along the way um just for our listeners who may have no idea what cream magazine was because um you know uh we're talking about the 70s here but just real quick uh barry kramer was the owner of a record store and a head shop on the uh, campus of wayne state and he got a bunch of writers and editors together from the detroit area and you have to remember we're talking 1969 in detroit where it was very politically charged, it was racially charged, but you had a history of great music that came out of this town from Motown through to like the seminal punk rock bands like MC5 and the Stooges. You also had Alice Cooper, Ted Nugent, Mitch Ryder. So there was this group of fairly, I would say unsavory, but super intellectual people who did not like having to live up to any kind of expectation and sort of made it their business to tear down that convention that had sort of already cropped up among rock criticism. And, you know, I've seen you in other interviews talk about Detroit. Can you tell me why this magazine could only have come out of a city like Detroit?
1: Well, I think Detroit has no reverence for famous people, rich people, anybody who who puts on airs, that whole pretension. I mean, we're, made, we're a company town, and we're made up of... You know, blue collar types. And um, we just think that, you know, that their errors aren't going to get them anywhere. So I think that we all tended to feel like everyone was like us. Was it communism? No. Was it socialism? No. It was just that we're all the same. There's just this egalitarianism that really went through the strain of what Detroiters were. And the other thing is, it's kind of like, what's St. Louis where show me? Well, if there's a motto for Detroit, it's make me so anything you, you're expected to do you won't do so you'll go as far as you can to do something different or to to just somebody's paradigm of what music reporting or whatever it is you know how you should comb your hair like so many things so there's that anti-disestablishment kind of strain and then there's also that reverence no reverence for famous people and then there's just that Abuse is love. I know I said that before, but Detroit is if you like somebody, you insult them, and you insult them in a really imaginative way. It's not like <laughs> your mother kind of kind of insults. It's much more expressive and much more imaginative. So you put those three ingredients together, and then you have Cream Magazine. Um, we didn't fit anywhere, but it's a time where people were actually looking for a place. It's on the back of of love and peace and the summer of love um, and hippies. It's it's that. You, it's like you just, it's like there, there's a polarization in the culture. There's straights so or there's heads, and we fell somewhere in between. I mean, are we the descendants of the beatniks? I don't even know. Are we bohemians? It's just there was no place. But the thing was, is when we all came together, we all knew we were in the right place because we were all outsiders or what you said, outlaw writers. We were all kind of outlaw, like we weren't, we weren't doing what was expected.
0: Well, you know, if you look at, at, at sort of the pomposity, maybe sort of, lack of a better term of uh, the West Coast and East Coast and, and the way Rolling Stone had sort of set themselves up on this lofty perch, there was a market or an opportunity there for somebody to come in and be irreverent and to not be uh, talking to the to the super intellectuals, but be talking more, like I said to Scott, talking to the to the dude on the street you know saying something like hey this is a turd don't waste your money you know like and i think that 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 cream was probably noticed or at least detroit had to have been noticed by people at rolling stone and by people in other states and there was sort of a maybe like this thing is coming and we we know about it and we've heard about it and it's kind of threatening to our whole sort of hippie manifesto that we have and I think that was one of the reasons why Cream just, which is, you know, like a populist magazine. And uh, I, I heard that when you first came out, is this true that they got confused as to the title and they actually distributed you guys like in porn shops next to <laughs> Screw Magazine and all that?
1: Yeah, we were, we were racked like that, you know, next to Screw, absolutely, in, in Penthouse. And um, that, there's that Jeff Daniel quote where he says, it's kind of like buying Playboy. I mean there are racy pictures all the time and we were certainly i don't want to say misogynist because it's that that quote about it's not a joke unless it's funny from roger rabbit you know it's like it's like we weren't going to put naked girls on or or actually like accusing people of being gay or or in the closet unless it was funny so everything was always shot through with this humor and if it wasn't funny we would wouldn't do it so we didn't do things just tokenism nudity or tokenism like i don't think we were so racist i think we were just a little inappropriate about about women and, and i, I it's just crazy because i i am a woman and i've always you know i don't really write like a girl despite my old editor of guitar world brad Tlinsky, telling me years ago <laughs> i wrote like a girl but i really never have most people think when they see my name that, that i'm a man but um i i just think that We were always going for the joke. We were always going for the big laugh. And however we got there, we weren't thinking about it. Again, in the documentary, Robert Duncan says, were we wrong? Yeah. Was he embarrassed by it? Yeah. I mean, now in the context of 2020, you go, oh my god, I can't believe we said that. But in 1971, no one was thinking that way. You can't put a current filter on the past and evaluate it that way. You just don't know what's going to come up ahead.
0: I mean, in the, back in that period of time, because like I was a young, guy, a young kid back then, and I remember going to the newsstand, and as a writer, I started putting my style together by first reading Marvel Comics, and then from there, I went on to Mad Magazine, and from there, I went on to Cream, and I ended up as an advertising copywriter, and I think it's no accident, Cream taught me how to talk straight to people, not down to people, not up to people, but straight to people in a sort of conversational way. When you joined Cream, what was the vibe like? And I'm curious about the manifesto that Scott mentioned that Barry wrote when you guys first started out that he thought was very, very uh, unique because it was usually the kind of a thing that a magazine puts out after they've been together five or six years Mm -hmm. and they've built up some momentum. But you guys were, you know, like right there from day one. Can you describe just the feeling and what, what was going on when you guys first put yourselves in a room and said, hey, let's do this?
1: Well, I wasn't there from day one. I was there like probably nine months into it. But the thing was is that a lot of us were part of the White Panther Party. I mean, there was like revolutionary politics in Detroit from the MC5 on, probably prior to that. But the MC5, the Black Panthers, I mean, the White Panthers, Uh, We're a union town, so we had certain rules, we had certain stipulations of what we wanted to do and what we were going to do and what we weren't going to do, and we talked about pomposity, like that was just never going to enter into it, we wanted to be really real. And there's something also about being from a blue-collar town, and you said the thing like don't buy this record as a turd, there's like this crazy thriftiness too, where you don't want someone to waste their money on something that was actually hyped big, but is really actually an inferior product. I mean, that explains the popularity of Robert Crisco's consumer guide, because we would tell the truth, take no prisoners. You not tell the truth because it was funny. We told the truth because we wanted the readership to be informed about what we saw. It's that Lerda Lynn likes to say, she always says, what, people are thinking. And I think that was really true of Cream. We said everything that people were thinking. I mean, my ethos when I interview people is I would ask sometimes awkward questions, but I would always ask really plain spoken questions of what other people would actually want to know about a rock star, you know, not anything insidery. I think you really have to be a voice and a filter for your readers. And I think that's what we were.
0: Well, you, you actually uh, started writing officially for Cream. Uh, when Dave Marsh uh, assigned you to cover Smokey Robinson's retirement press conference, and you wrote an open letter to Smokey. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, he fooled me. I had no idea he was taking me. Uh, He took me to... Okay, I'm going to backtrack that. Dave Marsh started my career by, by fooling me. He invited me to go with him to Smokey Robinson's retirement press conference, because he knew I loved the miracles. So... I got out of school. I met him downtown. We went to this fancy hotel and there was Smokey Robinson saying there was just, you know, no more, you know, I'm going solo. And, you know, I was tearful. I was sad. I I wasn't taking notes. That's the important part of this. And that night I went back to my parents' house and about 10 o'clock, Dave calls me, goes, where's that? Where's that article? I go, what are you talking about? And he said, well, here, I took you down to see Smokey so you could write about his retirement. I said, you did not. And he said, yeah, I did. Get it over here, get it done. So I didn't have a miracle record in the house. So I got in my parents' car. I drove to, to Cream offices. I picked up all his miracle records. I played them all night long. And I wrote this open letter to, to uh, Smokey Robinson begging him not to retire. Not only was that my first article, it ended up being the cover story. So it was just like one of those seminal moments that, you know, I had no idea I was going to do that. I think he just did it because I was so anxious about writing. I'm such a perfectionist anyway, that I I didn't know how to like get my feet wet. I didn't know how to jump in and just write something so he made me so after that everything was okay like I started writing regularly for Cree but I was at that same time I was the subscription kid they had hired me to be the subscription editor and the circulation manager and I did all the business stuff oddly but that's really how I got to Cree magazine
0: you had okay you guys were monthly so how did the typical month go I mean what were the deadline pressures like how did you break down was there like you know week one we want to be here week two we want to be here we want to be to the printer by such and such was there any kind of a a flow that maybe writers would be really really curious to know just like what was it like to to be part of that
1: i mean i got more and more professional as time went on i mean yeah we would have a target of what we want but it was early on people were just learning how to write and, and i don't mean us so much just like the people who would write for us and we'd have to gather all the copy and you know when we didn't get it like Lester and I would spend like after work we'd call up the writers and ask where the stuff was and they'd have you know their versions of the dog ate it so we were always in a panic about getting the copy and you know in the end if the copy wasn't there we'd have to write it too I mean Lester wrote a lot of those letters and a lot of those um, record reviews that have crazy bylines Lester wrote you know we we would write the beat goes on and not take bylines so um it was such intense work. Like we would all probably roll in around 11 or 12 o'clock because we worked all night long. I mean, there were so many nights we didn't go home. I mean, I got into the habit of putting a pillow under my desk and just going to sleep underneath my desk. Lester slept on the green Naugahide, um couch we had when we moved to the Birmingham offices. Prior to that, we lived where we worked because it was a communal situation. So, uh, and before I was really officially, on staff. I was, at, I was going out with the art director, Charlie Oranger, so the offices were only like a floor away from where everybody had their, their bedrooms. So, you know, you're always at work. And that was always, that was true until probably I left. I mean, we never socialized with anyone. I think Connie Kramer talks about that in the movie that we had, you know, we, we didn't know anybody. That's where all the inner office relationships because who else do we see? We saw no one. It was like we were this dysfunctional family because we all had the same idea and we had to get the magazine out. I mean, I do remember when they would lay out the magazine and that would usually take four or five days. And, and you know, I remember like Charlie Oranger and Rick Siegel who laid out the original magazine they just didn't stop. I mean, we were a little bit fueled, drug fueled in order to, you know, have that ability. And as the magazine grew, we really didn't bring on more staff. So it's, it was like, it was intense. They were 18 hour days weren't unusual.
0: It sounds, it sounds a little bit, if I could draw an analogy of Gilligan's Island, sort of like cream (laughs) Island, like you guys were all, you know, and, and, and so people would, you know, maybe fall in love with a coworker or, you know, date each other. And, and there was, a sense of just my opinion that when you're in almost a communal situation like that that it it really actually fuels that loyalty and that drive yeah. because it's like kind of us against the world and no one's gonna you know you're not corporate you're not monetized in any way you, you weren't answerable did were you answerable to anyone i mean because no. barry was the publisher right so there, there was. There wasn't anybody coming down saying, you oh, know, I think Zeppelin might not like this review.
1: Nobody ever cared. In fact, that it didn't, it didn't matter. In fact, I always felt two things. Number one, you're so right about the island. I once wrote about saying it was like Pinocchio's Donkey donkey Island. You know, we all looked the same. We looked normal, but we weren't. And the other part was uh, it was a rite of passage. I mean, people would come to our offices, artists. I mean, they'd, they'd go to Detroit Metro Airport. And the next place they would come with the cream offices and they always knew they were going to get insulted. I mean, Lester, especially, he was just brave. He was brave and brazen, and he had no compunction about insulting a rock star to their face. The thing about
0: Lester is, and you know this happens over the years when someone becomes an icon. like he is obviously it has to be the most famous rock critic of yeah. all time. There's been movies, that fictionalized movies made about him and stuff. but there's a lot of people that don't really understand. Um, they may have read some books about him and stuff like that. Can you describe what he was as a as a person in, in any kind of way you can that would give us an idea? Maybe a, an anecdote here and there that you haven't shared before, or something about Lester that would flesh him out as a you know like a full human being, warts and all.
1: Yeah, um, I mean he was an obsessive music lover. He didn't have a father. His father died in a fire really early in his life so he um, had real no real male role role models except maybe musicians I mean he idolized Lou Reed there were other people prior to that I mean there's that I don't know how famous it is I, I ran across it when I was doing research a while ago and he says don't ask me why I obsessively look to rock and roll bands for some kind of model of a better society i guess i once glimpsed something beautiful in a flashbulb moment and perhaps mistaken it for prophecy i've been seeking its fulfillment ever since Mm, so to me that sums up who lester is lester saw some glimmer of truth in a lyric and encoded in some sound and he realized that's where the truth lies and that's where the truth lies for him And so he followed that. Greal Marcus called him a moralist. And I'm not sure that he was a moralist so much as he had high expectations for his heroes. And when they fell down on the job, he wasn't shy about telling them that. Uh, He had a big heart. He was a little judgmental. I I can't say you you always have to prove yourself. He loved the underdog. Uh, He loved championing people where he saw a spark of brilliance in them that hadn't been fanned into anything substantial yet. And he really wanted to help people. He would spend hours on the phone with writers who wrote him letters. And if they include their phone numbers, Lester would call him. Um, hmm. He was one of the most generous people I've ever met in my life. And he was a fun hog. I mean, when he walked into a room, the air just sizzled. Like, all so he was always down with for whatever, like whether it was pouring, Uh, Romolar into Susan Whitehall's Root Beer or it was yeah I know or or you know not like dosing as a prank or just you know he, he was like he would play metal machine music when it came out obsessively and he had control of our record player in the office and he wouldn't let us change the record and that went on for hours and hours and hours and you know, it was always something like that. It was, you always felt like you were at some crazy birthday party with Lester and he was the ringmaster.
0: That's beautiful. I mean, Lester sounds to me like some sort of metaphysical, uh, you know, guiding light that, uh, I mean, obviously you had to feel incredibly lucky to have that guy there and, yeah. and his, I, I'm just curious, he had, there's one clip of him that I've seen on the internet and there's the only one I've seen on YouTube where he talks about hating, Emerson Lake and Palmer and having these other things did did you guys have a list of bands that like we don't cover these bands not no. so much there wasn't no. anything like that
1: no it's like you could cover anything if you wanted to cover the Jackson 5 you'd cover the Jackson 5 that, that if he loved Helen Reddy you know um, I covered Dion Warwick I mean had a thing for like James Gang it's like you oh go they're, great. they're great they're oh, great yeah I love James Gang but there was like no, there were no rules. It's like if you had enough enthusiasm and passion, you could convince the rest of us that they were worthy of color, but we would never have stopped you. Like I, I did have a little bit of problem getting everyone to cover KISS because I had run into them. I was in New York coming back from a trip to England, and I had a layover, and I went to meet a friend at this nearest. Um, it was I, some event, and they were having a panel about sex and gender and rock and roll. And they had Richard Robinson, who, who's like a, a magician now, but he was a technical writer and he was Lou Reed's former manager. And Danny Fields who discovered the, the Stooges and um, Wayne County, the famous transgender artist, And then there were Kiss on this panel and they were in makeup and they all had name tags in front of them, but they had switched them. I didn't know that then. I knew that later when I looked at a picture and every time someone would ask them a question they would answer it's only rock and roll but I like it because the stone song had just come out right that year and they wouldn't break character I kept going oh my god this is like death of of art this is so warholy and so just some this is a moment and I remember going back to Detroit and going oh we've got to cover them and Ben Edmonds kept telling me, oh, no, no, they're just rock and roll clowns. They're trash. We're not covering them. And I kept persisting. I go, no, no. This is like a, this is idea whose time had come. And they had said after they were sick of me bugging them about it, they finally said, all right, you cover them. So I ended up doing a comic strip about them. But after that, we covered them a lot because the kids started getting hip to who they were and wanted them. And because we championed them so early, they gave us great license in covering them. I mean, letting us photograph them without their makeup. And then the story that pretty much broke my career where I pitched the idea of going on stage with them to do my story. And I don't think that would have happened had I not championed them so hard in the beginning. So if you want to do a big story, you did quasi have to... Lobby the rest of us, but not in any big way. We, we let anybody go with anything. Like one of my other favorite stories, the Alice Cooper alcoholic um, cookbook. You know, I that, saw. I remember that actually. Yeah, that's a great story. But nobody. It's like no one said no. You know, drinking's bad for teens. It was just again. It had to be funny. It had to be a little provocative. It had to be really good coverage and. The reporting was smart, it wasn't dumb. We used to say, and I think it's in the movie that we were across between Mad Magazine and Esquire, the high and low culture and where it met in the middle and that's where Cream lives.
0: Didn't Alice like have this uh, case of Budweiser a day drinking thing going yes. on for a while? Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about the KISS interview because um, one of the things that I've heard you talk about is the difficulties today with getting access to subjects and how in the past, you would go on the road or you would be with a band for a week or two. And the night you went on stage with Kiss, you said a man could not have done that story. He would not have got the access. Being an underestimated undergender, I got away with things my male counterparts couldn't. And I think that experience has impacted everything I've written afterward. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, I think that they wouldn't have, okay, when you're a female rock writer, you're not really in competition with a male artist because there is a truism that is actually true. A lot of rock writers, male rock writers, want to be musicians or are musicians because they can speak the language or they can talk guitar. A lot of female artists, a lot of female journalists aren't musicians. Some are, but on the whole, I think they do it for different reasons and I think back when I started and given that story was in 1975 um, I women and rock journal were still an anomaly there weren't very many of us there was Roberta Kruger and there was um, Patty Smith was just starting but more of a poet and Lisa Robinson and you know a couple others but there really weren't many so you tended to get underestimated. They would think you wouldn't know anything about music. And you asked a question, again, like an a obvious question or something that you think anybody else would want to know, like, doesn't the makeup itch, you know? <laughs> like, you know, just really like things- A guy would really... never
0: think of that question, by the no,
1: way. No, no, they wouldn't. So, you, so you're asking very pragmatic things, the things that you really think about had you been sitting next to them, on a plane, you know, just you're making conversation. So I would ask things like that, like things I would be really curious about. And they would tell me because what I found over my life is when you ask them a question, they tend to actually answer it. Very few people will not answer it or or just shut you down. So I think that that was the the curious female is much more of of an archetype than the curious male. So I always think that people just didn't see me as a threat or didn't see me as a serious reporter. And that was terrible, but it was wonderful because like the butler, I saw things that people didn't think I saw. And And I did know and do know a lot about music. I mean, I may not be a musician, but I do know a lot about music. So that always played into my hands. It's like, I wasn't acting like a dumb blonde. I was just asking again, very like interesting questions that like maybe your mother would ask you know even though I was like 18 and 19 um, I was still doing it I still do that today I think it's, it's an advantage of being a woman I think that a you absorb more you see different things that a man does you see the the side roads instead of just taking the direct highway straight to like well what's this third album about and does it build on the second album kind of stuff I, I think again I want to be stand-in for all the things that that fans wanna know because I'm a fan by heart and I wanna know those things like, where did that sound come from? Did you really write that in your sleep?
0: One of the things you said about that experience where you got on stage with a band in front of 6,000 people and performed in, in full makeup, you said, I have definitely much more empathy and an understanding of musicians and that thrill and how hard it is to give up that surge of power that you get every night, you understand what it's like to stand in front of people. So my question is, when you were doing that, it reminded me of a quote that another one of my favorite Detroit rockers, Glenn Fry, made, that the road could be really, really hard on your head. In other words, you'd be in front of 20,000 people and a half hour later alone in a hotel room. And I think he says something with a bag of drugs for company. I mean, <laughs> was that something where when you would go on the road and you would have that access, did it ever, make you feel maybe a little melancholic when it ended? Like you had been part of something and then now it was over and like maybe you never see these guys again. And because I I noticed that on my podcast, when I interview people, sometimes I go, wow, that was really great. And yep, that's it. You know, Um, see you later, dude. You know, I mean, how did that, did that ever play into your thought patterns that that it was kind of maybe a little melancholic to be part of that and then it was over?
1: You know, really early in my career, I went on tour with Grand Funk Railroad and Johnny Brewer, the drummer, was signing autographs. We were in Niagara Falls, New York, and every time he signed an autograph, the person he signed it for would look at him funny. And I said, what do you write to them? Like, what could you possibly say that they give you that look? And he goes, I write yours temporarily. And I wow. said, oh my God, that is so deep. And what I realized from that is that you get a moment with a star and you're not gonna build on it. It's really, it's like the best blind date or the best date you ever have, but you never have a second one. So you have to take it for what that is. What I've learned over the years, because I, I re-interview so many people in my life. You know, I, I'll interview Neil Young, I've interviewed Iggy Pop. I mean, you know, name anybody. I've usually interviewed them multiple times because I still work and I, that makes me, you know, I've been doing this for so many years. but the only time you get the best story is the first time because you know nothing about them and you just go for it. You just go for the jugular or you go or or they don't know your tricks, you know theirs and you're just, it's like two animals finding their place. So I I think when he said that, that really resonated with me and I have really lived by that yours temporarily. That's all you get. But I just interviewed Lee um, about a month ago for a bright eyes story and he was talking about this fairy thing. He said that when he does movies or he's, he guests on somebody's album, you bond so tightly in that kind of configuration that when you leave, you're always leaving with this bitter, sweet, melancholy feeling. And yeah, you do. I mean, there's some you like a lot more than you like others. And again, that's where you tend to go back and re interview them. But, you know, it really is a, a bright, shiny moment and then it's over.
0: I have, a, I have a question for you. Who's the tougher interview, Neil Young or Lou Reed?
1: <laughs> oh, Neil Young by far.
0: Yeah, because I know Lou is just, I've heard stories, but what is, what is it like to talk to Neil Young? Is he very um, selective in what he says?
1: Well, his dad was a journalist. Okay. So he knows all the tricks. So he will, um, he will answer what he wants to, or he'll be kind of oblique. Uh, The only way to interview him is to actually pay attention to his lyrics because everything that he really thinks at that moment in time are in his lyrics. So if you do that, then you get the best interview of your life. But if you ask him anything personal or anything that he doesn't want to talk about, he just won't and he'll just stare at you. And you also have to make it like a conversation. You can't go in with an agenda. It's like you get what you get because he's Neil Young. You know, it's like he's been doing it a long time. He's been famous for 50, 60 years. And he doesn't really care if you like him or not. Uh, Lou Reed cared if you liked him or not. Lou Reed was a really sensitive soul and one of my favorite interviews of my whole life. Right. Um, and he was every time he did an interview, it felt like it was new because he wanted to give so much. Really, it's like Neil Young is so self-contained. He's in his own world. And in that own world, he can make this eccentric music or those eccentric guitar sounds, and um, he doesn't need anybody. I mean, he probably needs, he needs a maid, you know? It's like a man needs a maid. He's <laughs> yeah. gotta be in love, and other than that, I don't think he needs anything.
0: Yeah, I the guy is so interesting to me because he does obviously have a, a component of him that's incredibly supportive of the people he plays with, and he's he's brought so many great musicians and given them the opportunity to play. But he is very um, difficult to pigeonhole or whatever. You know, there's a famous story Mm. about, you know, uh, Buffalo Springfield. I know. (laughs) Playing the uh, him taking off the night of The Tonight Show. Um, I think he also um, I think he bailed on Steve Stills during the Stills Young tour and uh, the CSNY reunion tour. And doesn't he say something to the point of if you're patient and you wait for me, I'll come back around. But. I'm not necessarily going to be there now or next week. And if you expect that, you know, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. He said
1: that to me too. He said that his life is a series of concentric circles and he's going to go pass around. So if you just wait there, he'll show up again, but he's not going to do it when you say, so yeah, he's very like honest about it. The thing about him, he's really honest. So it's nothing harder to do is to interview someone who's going to tell you the truth and you don't think you're going to like it
0: yeah yeah like
1: so that that is really unnerving he is an unnerving interview I like him quite a bit you know I I'm always up for the challenge I remember one time I was interviewing him around one of the reunions with CSNY and um, I said okay I'm giving you this one but I have to have the next one because you obviously want to tell me what you want to tell me you're not answering my questions and it just (laughs) makes them laugh you know (laughs) I I wanted to talk
0: about a guy that meant a lot to me and from everything I've been able to tell meant a lot to you and that was Ronnie Van Zandt and I find it interesting that this guy has been gone for so long and the original band has been gone for so long and yet that story just continues to um, resonate among among people and I in my own opinion, it was uh, the authenticity of the music, the directness in the way he wrote his lyrics. But for you, it was an encounter that you had where I believe uh, Lester said, hey, you know, I don't know these guys very well. You want to go pick up the cover for me and do this interview? Can you talk about the day you met those guys? I believe yeah. it was in a bar in Detroit and, and like what happened?
1: Yeah, it was Lester's birthday and he was scheduled to interview them and he decided that he wanted to go out with, friends for his birthday. And he said to me, you're in every." And I go, I am not. I don't know a thing about him. He goes, don't worry. I'll write the questions. This is your birthday present to me. Huh. So I give in. I usually did. I mean, I, I pretty much took stories no one else wanted because I figured they would always lead me somewhere. And it was just one of those things. So I went knowing very little about them, having heard their record, but that was about it. Having Lester's questions in my hand I went to the Book Cadillac um, Hotel bar and I met them there, and they most of them were really bad. I mean, it's because I have interviewed them all since then. I mean, every few years I would interview them after that, but they were just crap to me. Like like Alan Collins especially, and.
0: what did they say to you? Because I, I know I know in your article that I read, the great article you wrote a couple of years ago about about Ronnie, that they were basically assholes. You know, that oh, that they were such co-
1: assholes. Yeah, they kept telling me I was just a girl and I was Northern, and why would they want to talk to someone who was a girl and a Northerner, you know? It was like, really? Okay. Um, and, I mean, they weren't the only ones. I mean, Dickie Betts was that way to me, too, when I was on tour with the Almond Brothers. There was something in that, you know, that southern misogynist male right, model right. that they weren't gonna talk to any girl rock writer. Um, and I don't know whether Ronnie took pity on me or not, but I tried to interview them. None of them would talk to me. Leon Sphinx Leon Sphinx Leon Wilkinson <laughs> spoke to me. Um, he was he was nice. Billy Powell was shy, but he was kind of going along with the the group. But um, Ronnie said, I'll come over here, let's talk. So we talked for a couple of hours. I mean he wasn't drinking. He was he was a little morose it was it was well it was lester's birthday it was december 12th and he um it was the last day of the tour and he kept telling me that you know things were just going bad at home and you know he's had janice joplin's disease because he drank too much and that's why he wasn't drinking tonight and then he all of a sudden he switched he had a bloody mary and then he got really loose-lipped and he said um you know i don't expect to see 30 and he was 28 and this is December. His twenty-ninth birthday would have been the next month. So it's
0: December 1976,
1: I assume? Uh no, it was Seventy five? Seventy-five. Okay. And and um so he said he said that he had Janus Chopin disease and he wasn't gonna live it was to see his thirtieth birthday. And I said, Oh no, no, you're just tired. You know, you'll feel feel better when you get to Florida, you know, all this is behind you. But some little voice when I was writing it said, put it in the story, put it in the story. So I put it in the story that he said he was going to die within a year. And damn if he didn't die. I mean, I was at a show in Los Angeles reviewing it and they stopped the show and they said, uh, Leonard Skinner's plane had crashed and there are some survivors and some people didn't make it. And immediately I knew Ronnie didn't make it. Yeah. And it was like, it was like a ghost story. And over the years, I mean, I've had haunted dreams about him. I've gone down there on the 20th anniversary and the 30th anniversary and his parents were alive, you know, spoke to him. And they'd all seen Ronnie's ghost. I mean, it was a harrowing story. He was such a heavy duty person. If anybody knew when he was going to go, it would have been Ronnie. I mean, he was like a prophet. He, um, I know they were really bad sides. I mean, when I interviewed a lot of people during the 20th anniversary and I found out so much bad stuff, but, you know, I just saw this really kind, like downtrodden guy. And, um, you know, that's the image that I keep with me. And I know Cameron Crowe feels the same way. He did that Brody's episode that was a dedication to Ronnie. So he affected some people really deeply. Al Cooper, who discovered them, he is the same kind of, reference for Ronnie. So if you love him, you really love him. I mean, I only spent that one day with him, but um, it really impacted the rest of my life. Somebody asked me recently, would I still feel that way had he lived? And I don't know, I think I would. There was just something that, that, again, yours temporarily, but there's something that just exchanged. And It wasn't wasn't like we flashed on each other or, or it wasn't romantic. It was just, I don't know, he let me in and that's everything.
0: I think he had a duality, obviously, um, that would was probably somewhat predicated around drinking. Like when he was sober, he was probably a, a different guy. I mean, yeah. I um, interviewed uh, Charles M. Young uh, for my podcast, I mean, excuse me, for my uh, writing blog, which is Gonzarilla.net. I want to give a little plug there, but there is an interview that I did with Chuck, uh, we were corresponding for years uh, via emails back and forth. And he would tell me, he had a very, uh, Ronnie affected him in the same sort of way. He had to do an interview with Skinner, uh, I guess it was the summer of 76. They were in the Rolling Stone building to promote um, either uh, probably the live album, uh, yeah. or maybe maybe give me back my bullets. I'm not sure, but um, you know, uh, Chuck was told, hey, they're downstairs like 20 floors below in the hotel bar and uh, we're hoping they don't destroy the place, but when you go down there and and talk to them. So there's this famous photo op where he went down there and there was, this would be horrible today because PETA would be all over you, but there was a a chimp drinking Jack Daniels. (laughs) Famous, famous. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, The chimp was drinking Jack Daniels. with Artemis and Alan. And it's a really funny. And then there's a photo of the three of them of Chuck with them and stuff. And Chuck, Chuck was fascinated with Ronnie Van Zant. I believe Chuck was from the South. And there was a, a connection, a geographical connection. But he said that the publicist told him, do not make eye contact with the lead singer. Do not say anything. Do not look at him. Do not anything. And he said that he got scared literally that and it kind of reminded me of maybe the the rappers in the 90s like the death yeah. rappers like like you asked the question but you asked the wrong question and there was the famous story where i don't know if this is true where ronnie said to an interviewer uh who he was really annoyed at well how are you going to get out of this room <laughs> so you know there there was there was that going on too but chuck said that it ended up uh, ronnie went down the street and got in a fight and beat was beat somebody up but it, it didn't really matter because I, I also heard a story from Fee Waybill, and this wasn't from Third Hand. He was actually on stage at a tube show. And he said, we went backstage to meet the band because they were idols of ours. They represented like, we're gonna do whatever we want and we don't care and, and we love them. And he says, we pulled back the curtain and we walked backstage and here's the lead singer punching his guitar player. And you can hear these cracks oh, yeah. and these crashes. and and." and everything and he goes really punches like meat on fist and everything and and it's i think that's kind of i mean would you agree that that kind of a, a mythology about a performer the the, the ying and the yang the duality is what makes them interesting If they're just nice guys nobody really cares if they're just yeah. jokes nobody cares
1: well people always no, I think it's that tension. I think that, um, I think that they do care if they're jerks, oh, unless they're really mean-spirited. Like, you know, that's how I always think the Third Eye Blind um, lead singer ruined his career because he was dismissive and not nice to journalists. I mean, it's not like we have all that power as we used to, but, you know, it does catch up with you. Um, I do think I, Tom Petty was like that. You know, he didn't suffer fools gladly. He was like everybody's best hang and he could turn on a dime. I remember once interviewing him and thinking he was like one of those dolls that they used to have in the 60s that had a little <laughs> knob in their head and you could, you'd flip it and there'd be another expression. So he was a lot like that too. With social
0: media and particularly like these Facebook groups, um, there has been an obsession with the past that has been profound, in other words, people talking about Leonard Skinner, the original band, almost yeah. in real time. Like, you know, here's a picture of Ronnie in this and Ronnie in that, and I'm just wondering what you think about, do you think that that kind of living in the past is healthy? Like in 1973, was Leonard Skinner obsessing about something that happened 10 or 15 years of music or, or were they creating their own present right now And I'm just wondering if if you think this becomes a restraint, you know, the retrospective
1: culture that we have. I think they were obsessing about free because they love free so much, you know? (laughs) So no, I think think you're always looking back because you're always looking back because you want to best what came before you. I mean, that's your only yardstick that you really have. Um, You said something about Lester, and I'm going to say this because you talked about how metaphysical, like his writing, it's like, I, I always thought, And he said, I was lucky to be next to him. I actually thought it was a curse because he was tapped into something and like Ronnie, which is so funny, um, greater than himself. And I sometimes feel I wrote an obit for for him or actually for the special issue dedicated um, this same thing called throat culture um, about him. And I realized that on some level, he knew that he didn't have a lot of time either. And it somehow accelerated his mental prowess and his, his ability to write so fast because it was almost like the words came out of his fingers not his head you know and i think that there was something that was true with leonard skinner in the original band that ronnie didn't well seem to know he didn't have much time and it makes you I don't know. You're you're attuned to something bigger than all of us. I mean, the truth is out there. Do you get to reel it in? I think he got to reel it in, and I think that's why certain music will live on. I think Lou Reed was that way. I think Led Zeppelin was that way. They just found that magic chord, whatever it is. That's, I I don't even know. I think I've been following that because I always want to see the holy in music, because I think that's where it exists for me, and I think it's where it exists for a lot of musicians, and I think that's why stuff really lives on and all things don't live on to the Spice Girls live on, only as a cultural meme. Right, well, I mean, you know, um,
0: David Briggs, who was Neil Young's producer and a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man, a conceptualist, he used to tell Neil that he wanted Neil to continually reach for the source. Uh, That was the quote. And the source that I would interpret that would be cinnamon girl at high volume just cranking it out and and not worrying about a lot of the things that the distractions that happen with musicians where they start to worry about, um, you know, I don't want to knock the Eagles because I'm actually a fan of their music, but you yeah, know, but like, you know, Don Henley worrying excessively worrying about what this writer said or what that writer said. I think Ronnie had a pretty healthy disrespect for East Coast writers. I know that he felt that they didn't get they didn't get a deal. And I think that when Al Cooper was first attracted to skinner and he saw them playing down the South, he felt like, how am I going to sell this to like <laughs> the New York corporate? Let's talk about a guy that is very polarizing, one of the most polarizing Detroit figures in Ted Nugent. And he appears in the documentary, this amazing documentary, Cream, America's Only Rock and Roll Magazine. And I'm talking to Jan Uchelski right now. And this is Gonzarilla. I want to do a back announce. But um, the... The, uh, the Ted Nugent th- thing has gotten a little bit of flack from some of the people on social media saying, well, how can you have this right wing, you know, dude on the show? But you were a big Ted Nugent fan. He was written up in the magazine a lot, right?
1: Yeah, he was. I am I have to say I've known him since I was 15 and he was always an asshole then. <laughs> um, I mean, he would always pick a fight anytime. I mean, he would come to our office at Cream and Lester and I would Tended to tandem interview him, and he would just insult both of us, you know. But he really liked Lester because it was this this meeting of the minds, this sparring. Um, and over the years, I've interviewed him. When I worked for Gibson, I interviewed him because he used Gibson guitars. And um, he started with this bombast, and I said, "You know, that's really the least interesting thing about you. It's like you with your ranting." I go, "There's much, there's much more there than that." And after that, it was like a breakthrough. And this is like my whole life, like you know, because he's popped up because he. He played at clubs that I worked at. I used to be a Coca-Cola girl at the Grandy Ballroom in Detroit and you know we I can't say we had a contentious relationship because it was that way with everybody. But when we went to his house in Waco, Texas to interview him, myself and a cameraman, um, he was like he was a sweetheart. He would picked me flowers from his garden. It was like he made us coffee. He was he was so open in his interview because the story of Cream is actually the story of him. It's the story of Detroit music. It's like the birth of the Detroit music scene, really. And we, Cream, chronicled that. So our two histories really are interwoven. And there's a time when he actually broke down and he cried during the interviews. And it was like, it just got me. And he said something that stayed with me. It's as profound as the years temporarily, Is he said, that music is the way we talk to the tribe. And it's just to me he gets it like all the other stuff it really is the least interesting thing about him the his politics and his gun i mean i have to say it was a little unnerving when he had a big like ak-40 AK, I the ak-47 name. yeah
0: 47
1: just laying casually on the uh, kitchen counter but um other than that anomaly he was really a gentleman and he answered um he answered everything really truthfully and he I, I mean, I know there was one part and maybe one of my favorite parts of the documentary is he said that Dave Marsh was his favorite writer. And Dave Marsh is this like bit in the very end where the credits roll. And he says, uh, Jan Juchowski told me that Ted Nugent said I was his favorite writer. I wonder how he'll feel when he learns how to read. <laughs> It's like, <laughs> I feel terrible because T- Ted was so generous with his time, but it was, that was pure cream. That was living theater of what cream was really all about. Ted was, Ted was a great, great at sound bites too.
0: I mean, like to interview him, it's just like gold. He had a, he had a quote that he did for a MTV thing. They, they went out and he was firing guns on his, on his compound and he picks up, he picks up a shotgun. And he says, you know, a shotgun's a lot like a guitar. And he, and he drums on it. He goes, a little bit of wood, a little bit of metal, some nice twang, a reasonable blast. And damn, if I can't get my dinner with both of them. Oh, and I God. just remember thinking that the guy's got too much, he's got too much of an intellect to to not be interesting. And just speaking from a musical standpoint, like I still play double live Gonzo. I still think that his guitar tone is so true and so Detroit. And so it's too bad that there's a lot of people that will never, will judge him on modern PC standards and not really get in and listen to what this guy was. Because from the very beginning, I've always been a huge Nugent fan.
1: Yeah.
0: The documentary does have, it does touch on the tragic side. I wanted to talk a little bit about the dynamic between Barry Kramer, the publisher, and Lester Banks, uh, the, the senior editor these guys um, passed away within a couple of years of each other. And I, I'm just curious if, I think I speak for other people too, that I know nothing about Barry Kramer. Can you shed any light on how a guy with his kind of energy and his kind of vision, uh, just what happened with him and Lester? Was was it a sense of, did Lester lose hope when Barry died? Was there any connection between the proximity of their passings?
1: Um no, only, only time-wise, temporarily, but not because they were in touch at all. Um, I think what it really was is Lester was ready to move on. I mean, he had a big light and a big karma, and he should have done a lot more bigger things. And I think what happened was um, this was his way acting out. Barry was never going to fire him, so he had to, had to create the chaos that would allow him to leave Cream because it was really a hard place to leave, believe me. And the same thing with Dave Marsh. I mean, when Dave Marsh left, it was more like he had to create a scenario where he had to leave. And I think that was true for both of them. Um, what really eventually led to Lester leaving was he went on a junket. And we used to have an apartment in this hotel called the St. Regis in New York, and, which was on Central Park West. And Lester went up there and had like a three-day party and came back with an astronomical bill, like in the thousands and gave it to Barry for expenses and wanted him to pay it. And Barry said he wouldn't pay it. And really, it all spins around there, about around that. That was the last fight. But I think the thing was, is Barry, it was Barry's vision. It was Barry's magazine. We just worked there. Barry used to say there's two ways to do things, my way and the wrong way. And um, it's like, if you take a bunch of misfits who And what I began with is the ethos of Detroit is make me and someone tells you what to do and what not to do and there's only two ways and you have no agency there. Well, you're going to rebel against that at some point. And we all did. So that tension created by that and those limitations made us actually crazy creative in ways to thwart that. So it ended up in having a magnificent, insane, irreverent, anti-pompous magazine but in the end, it did not make for a really calm and tranquil workplace. So we were always on the edge of chaos. There were, when in the documentary we talk about the fights, those fights were all the time. I mean, it's it's like I felt on some level we were all abused children waiting for the parent to blow. You know,
0: there was a dog a dog shit story right about yeah. Dave. Dave and Lester's dog took a poop in the in the which by the way doesn't make the offices sound too uh, plush. But he took a poop in the office and then Dave didn't like it and he stuck it on Lester's typewriter. And the movie, the movie, the documentary uh, talks about, they, they literally had a fist fight down in the street. I mean, it was a really- yeah.
1: I was, um, because I was there because I came after classes at school and um, and all of a sudden, two dogs, Lester had an untrained dog named Muffin and David had a tightly wound, well-behaved dog <laughs> named Gloria and Glory would never do that but Muffin was always defecating all over the office and one day David came in and found it and he just had it, it was like one time too many and I just watched this horror horse struck, as he took the warm shit and put it right on top of Lester's IBM Selectric for Lester to find. Lester comes rolling in jovial and big big like arms always moving like in the almost famous like Philip Seymour Hoffman really got the walk down and puts his whole pack of disarray papers down and looks and sees what that is and starts yelling. And he automatically knows it's Marsh and he goes for him and then they tumble outside onto the driveway of this little hubble we used to live in in, Wald Lake Michigan. And they get into a fist fight and David gets his head banged.
0: So just for you guys out there, Lester won the fight?
1: Lester won the fight, but Lester was like six foot two and David was maybe five, seven. It was, it was not a fair fight, except that David was like, is a pugnacious,
0: you know, like he'll yeah. hurt
1: you. Oh no, it was, it was ugly.
0: Did those two guys agree uh, conceptually on the kind of, on the, did they have roughly the same musical taste or was it really divergent?
1: No, it was really divergent. Um, I think, I think everything about it was uh, David wanted us to be more political and and didactic and and thought that the reason for a magazine to exist was to instruct people or to inform them to further the state, you know, that I used to say that he always saw us as like foot soldiers in the counterculture army when there was a counterculture and Lester just saw us as bozos on the bus from that fire sign theater. Um, yeah, no, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. He just thought that we were just there to make fun of people and, um, they both were valid points and together they made a complete magazine but at some point they got too far apart and David wanted different things and again like Lester Wood maybe three years later he wanted to move towards more serious writing he wanted to write books he wanted to to move out of Detroit and um, he did and so then the magazine became much more of one thing much more Lester-centric. controlled the aesthetic. And it wasn't just Lester. I mean, all of us had that same fun-loving sense of humor, irreverence, go for, go for anything. I think there were more of us who were like Lester than less of us that were like David, because Davis was a very serious guy. I mean, he was, There's a picture in John Sinclair's book, The Guitar Army, where John Sinclair is being sentenced for two years for his marijuana possession. And if you look closely, in the crowd, you see Dave Marsh standing right next to to uh, John Sinclair. So he really was a foot soldier in the counterculture army. We just weren't.
0: Yeah. Well, he, Dave Dave was like you said from that white panther sort of mentality, and and Lester was from the Gonzo Gonzo, I guess for lack of a yeah. better term. I mean, I mean, because a lot of Lester's stories were about Lester, you know, and I think that was part of the whole writing thing that was going on there, where you made yourself. Oh yeah, you know, me journalism. Yeah, like me, Tom, jo- Tom Wolf. <laughs> So some of the younger listeners out there what do you say to them when they're judging the 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 sort of sexual content there was a great quote here i was looking for that uh somebody said that cream i think you might have said even that cream appealed to uh kind of young testosterone driven dudes and it yeah. wasn't it that there are one of the reviews said that there was no shortage of uh sexist japery, I'm not quite sure, I think I know what that means, but japery, in it, I mean, I think I've heard you say it before, but maybe you might want to just state it again to young women or anyone who, like, are, are thinking, like, how could you put up with these guys? It really was a different time, right?
1: Yeah, it was a different time. I think when I said that what we did had to be funny first, you know, and, and anything else that fell after that, we used, we used things as props. I mean, I, I remember some girl with, giant boobs and it was carrying two basketballs i think it was in the movie section and it was blah 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 and her three friends you know i mean that's as as spicy as it got you know it wasn't really period. it wasn't porno it was just pointed it was like locker room humor and i think for me and probably for not all women, like roberta kruger really did take umbrage about it but For me, it's like I just wanted to be a writer. You know, it's like if this was the job required that I wrote flashy headlines and funny headlines, then so be it. I wasn't going to be a stick in the mud because then I might as well just go get a job at the Detroit News. Right, right, right. And, And I wanted to be here. So I actually did what was required of me. And again, I knew what I was getting into. And it really was the 70s. Things were inappropriate. And, you know, you look at all those jokes like, get. You know, TV shows like Get Smart or like Mannix, or I was watching Columbo the other night, and Columbo asked this guy who he goes, "Doesn't it bother you to have female boss?" I mean, yeah, in 1972, things like that bothered guys. So you know, it was a whole different set of morals, and you know, it shifted in time. But back then, that was the way it was, and it really was a get along, you know, go along to get along. And I've always been really funny, and you know, if I'm going to meet funny captions. I did it in the context of the time. I know I say this and I wish I could make the words go back into my mouth from that one quote in the uh, documentary where I go, yeah, I wrote half the captions, so kill me. Like, I don't know. It's like, I, I don't want to be defensive about it. I did it. Like, let's move on.
0: The captions were like the coo- one of the coolest things about the magazine, the uh, the photo captions.
1: Yeah, they really were. The One of the
0: things that I do miss, and I know, I know Kareem wasn't super long articles, but I miss those long those long think pieces where you could actually sit down and write. I think Paul Nelson once wrote a 20,000 word uh, article on Warren Zevon for Rolling Stone. And uh, so, you know, we are living more in a different, uh, in a different time, but um, I wanted to ask you one final question. And this was something I came across, but you appeared in a 2012 documentary, big star, nothing can hurt me. um, And it, you discussed the, first and only rock writers convention in Memphis in 1972. And I had to ask you, what the hell is a rock critic convention?
1: (laughs) Oh my God. I was a brainchild of these guys from Ardent Records that they thought they would get us all down to Memphis. So we would write about their bands on Ardent. And so they paid for everybody to go like, have hotel rooms, plane tickets, and brought down every working member of the press. That's how I know most of the people I know, because we were all brought to one place. Like I met Cameron Crowe there, and Lenny Kaye, and and Ken Barnes, and Roberta Krueger, and Dave Marsh went, and Lester of course went, and Toby Goldstein. I mean, I could go on and on. It's the pantheon of, of all the rock critics that were working. and. One of the things that we saw, besides taking us to Graceland and just, I mean, they weren't money whipping us or thing whipping us because there was a lot of payload in that time. It was just they brought us together. And one of the things that we saw was Big, big Star. And I, I mean, I knew the box tops, you know, it's like I love that song, the letter. But I had no idea who Big Star were, but it was really a revelation. They were amazing. I mean, I was so like, like, blown away by them. I remember standing next to Lenny Kay watching him. And after Alex Chilton died, and we were at, um, both were at South by Southwest, and we happened to both stumble into the, this Alex Chilton Memorial. And Lenny Kaye, standing next to me, just inadvertently goes, who's that drummer? And I go, oh my god, you asked me the same thing in 1972. <laughs> so it was, like, it was like one of those strange concentric circles. Um, but it was it was an amazing thing to be with your people. It used to feel that way when you go to South by Southwest, the music convention in Austin, where you'd feel like you were with your brethren. And that was probably one of the greatest things I had ever done. And I'd only I don't think I'd even published by then. They just gave me like a free ride because I was like in the cream office.
0: That is, that is so cool. That is so cool. Um you want to talk a, a briefly about the 50th anniversary of the magazine and maybe some of the release information on the film?
1: Oh sure. Uh, well, if you go to creammovie.com, c r e e m m o v i e.com, there's a there's a update like where you can see the movie. It's virtually released on August 7th. Uh, and to coincide with the release, we're doing a 50th anniversary commemorative issue of Cream that'll be on sale on November 1st. I'm doing it along with Brad Tolinsky, who used to be the editor of Guitar World, and he's a Detroiter as well. And we're taking the best articles from the, the years that we published. There's a few Lester Bangs. There's, I mean, there's all the seminal stories. There's the best letters to the editors, like, there's Lester Bang's Bang. Yeah, I mean, it's like yeah, there's they're just cool. like like really great letters, even some of the ones that Lester Crib like he, the ones he wrote himself. And then there's a, the best of the record views. I mean, Brad and I have spent like weeks going into the archives just pulling out the, the, the most seminal, amazing stories. So we're using a lot of the original layouts and um, it's going to be great. I mean, it's exciting. I, to work on. I thought I would hate working on it because I kept going, oh my God, do I have to live in my own past? But it's been, it's been revelatory for me because not only was the writing funny, it was smart. I mean, the things that you think about and you go back and look and go, "Whoa, that really worked that I didn't know we were making history, but we were making history. So it's, it's a really great compilation.
0: And for people who want to pick that magazine up, that will be available uh, through the ma- uh, website as newsstands are kind of, I'm, I'm not sure I know of any in LA, there might be one, but how, how do they get a copy of that?
1: Well, I think we'll we'll have to address that on the links of, of probably go to Facebook, the Facebook page on, on Cream Magazine, or on Instagram, and we'll update it. But, um, I don't know, you know, it's really funny. I hadn't even thought that it won't go to the Newsstand. I still buy my magazines at <laughs> newsstands. I still go to like the supermarket and buy my magazines a lot.
0: <laughs> I've been talking to Jan Uchelski, and we've been talking about the New Cream documentary, which is coming out August seventh on virtual cinema. Uh, the film that is that I watched, the clips were amazing at breathing life into these characters that you've read about, you know, especially the glimpses of Barry and Lester and Dave and the, the video snippets and the, the interviews with Dave Marsh that were, that were new, newer interviews that I haven't seen before are really, really powerful. So, um, Jan, I wanted to thank you for talking to me today. And is, is there anything else that you want to plug or anything else coming up that uh, you want to discuss?
1: No, thank you so much for taking the time. And thanks for Scott Crawford for uh, involving me in this.
0: And thank you for this for this document that you guys have put out. Anyway, I want to thank you for doing the show, Jan. It's been a personal um, pleasure. Very cool part of my life to do this. So uh, I appreciate it.
1: Okay. Thanks so much, Brian. All right. Bye.